great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation that is facing, nonetheless, great threats that we seem almost powerful to counteract. And uh, the rise in crime everywhere, the rise in homelessness, and yes, the rise in substance abuse. Instead of counteracting it, there are politicians, political leaders, uh, uh, entertainment figures who actually seem to promote that rise in substance abuse, much of it fatal. The uh, fentanyl category of opioids accounted uh, in 2020, which is the last year we have numbers for, for 53,480 preventable deaths. That's a 59% increase over the total in 2019. And also, to put it another way, it's more than a thousand deaths a week. Every week. So what do we do about it, and how do people find out more about fentanyl? One of the organizations is actually uh, working on this issue. It's called Smart Approaches to Marijuana. The executive vice president, uh, I'm very honored to have on the show, uh, is uh, Luke Niferatos, uh, Niferatos, pardon me. And uh, uh, Luke, uh, your organization is called uh, Smart Approaches to Marijuana. How does that connect to fentanyl? Yeah, Michael, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be back on the show and an honor to be on it because I uh, grew up listening to you. So thank you for the great work you've done uh, over the many years. Well, I appreciate it. You bet. Um, so our organization uh, has worked on marijuana historically. Just this uh, last week, we announced the official launch of a new organization called the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. And that website is gooddrugpolicy.org. And so with that organization, we are now um, taking on this fentanyl crisis and really more broadly the addiction crisis that's facing our country right now because it's not just fentanyl that people are getting addicted to so many different drugs. Um, we're getting the wrong message out there to our communities, and we need to really fix this before it gets a lot worse, um, in, in our opinion. So, uh, but, you know, we, we focus on – you know, we started with marijuana, looking at how, you know, obviously there are so many people that you ask about, you know, the studies show about 95 to 99% of people using heroin, using these drugs that are being laced with fentanyl right now, they're starting with marijuana. So clearly marijuana is on that journey to these quote unquote harder drugs. Um, and I definitely think, you know, there certainly is a role to be played, but we need to do a lot more to educate people about fentanyl, how deadly it is and what it's doing to people right now, because it's, it's frankly quite scary. Okay, I, I know that um, I've told people before, I was prescribed fentanyl when I was recovering from cancer, and uh, <laughs> I, I didn't like it. They, um, they I had a patch that you, you put on, and it was just very, very powerful and did not, uh, it, 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 it seems to me when I, when I hear these stories, what is it about this drug that is so attractive to people uh, that people who are not using it as a painkiller don't get it initially at a hospital? They're now buying it on the street. It's being imported into the country, a lot of people say, through the southern border and from China. Uh, when, when did the particular fascination with this particular very dangerous drug begin?
Great question, Michael. Um, and I'm glad to hear, you know, it really didn't appeal to you. And, and that's likely because, you know, you're, you're leading a healthy life. You have a community of uh, support system around you. You're, you're making healthy life decisions. Uh, but for so many people across this country, there are so many that are living lives, uh, you know, frankly, in poverty, in isolation. Uh, maybe they're surrounded by the wrong crowd, et cetera. Um, you know, we have youth growing up uh, homeless in this country, which is just disgusting, in my opinion, uh, the, the levels of youth homelessness. And so when you when you are coming out of an environment like that, you're dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of emotion, a lot of other um, issues that you don't know what the healthy outlet is for that. And so you can see when someone's coming from that kind of a background, why they would want to feel numb. And, and that's exactly what opioids do is they give you this feeling of numbness, this escape from uh, the pain or, or whatever else. And it, it's a temporary and very uh, you know, uh, you know, unhealthy and deadly, potentially deadly outlet for, for your pain, but it's something that people are using. And so what basically happened was over the last 20 years or so, um, we saw you know these uh, you know opioid companies uh, pitching various kinds of opioids, OxyContin, obviously we, we've all heard about from Purdue Pharma. Um, and so what we started to see was you know most of the people that were prescribed opioids were just like you, Michael. Uh, most of them did not you know get addicted. Most of them you know used less than the prescribed amount and were done. Uh, but what happened was you know a number of folks. A small, uh, a minority, but a large minority of folks, uh, you know, had previous substance use disorders. So they had addiction in their background or some sort of substance use related issues in their background. And those folks did develop uh, an, addiction, an addiction to these opiates. Okay. So uh, over the last 20 years, these, these pharma companies built up that market of, of people who were, uh, you know, addicted and using these opiates. And then what happened was somebody invented fentanyl. Um, and so this was all kind of co-occurring over the last two decades, fentanyl was invented. Um, and it was, you know, not only is it 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, so it's much more potent than morphine, it's much more potent than, than heroin, um, so it gives a much bigger high uh, to the user, but it's also cheaper, um, much cheaper to obtain uh, than really any of the other opioids. And so that's what basically sparked this crisis is people found something that had a much bigger high, uh, people who were addicted to heroin, for example, they found something like fentanyl, much bigger high and uh, much cheaper. And for the dealer side, um, you had these uh, you know, dealers who were selling something that uh, you know, they could dilute fentanyl, very tiny little bit of fentanyl could go a long way and make a lot more money off of it. So kind of uh, a really uh, disastrous dynamic both on the, the drug dealer side as well as the, the side of those addicted to it. I know that there's a great deal of concern on so many, many issues concerning the southern border of the United States and the fact that that border is very far from secure. Uh, could we make a, a real dent in the fentanyl traffic uh, by blocking the importation of fentanyl in any quantities? Absolutely, we could. So what we need is a two-prong approach. We need supply reduction, which that means, you know, enforcement uh, along the border, enforcement on China and others that are, are shipping fentanyl over our borders right now, and demand reduction. So working with people in prevention, trying to get, you know, educate folks not to use drugs, not to, you know, trying to get people treatment if they're addicted. So we need a two-prong approach here. Uh, but yes, if we were to enforce and stop the supply, 
most of the supply of fentanyl that we're getting in, that uh, these uh, folks who are addicted are using um, is coming from China or Mexico. So we have a huge problem. Uh, you know, Biden hasn't really been willing to step up to uh, China and address the big elephant in the room there. Um, certainly Mexico continues um, to ship stuff over our border with, with relative ease. And until we do something about it, there's going to be plenty of fentanyl around um, our country. And, and here's the problem. Um, you know, you had these these pharma companies create the appetite for this level of, of, of drug, this kind of high, with their opiates. Now that we've kind of discovered what the pharma industry did, and we've, you know, uh, Purdue Pharma's in bankruptcy, we've, you know, the opioid settlements, et cetera, now uh, that supply is kind of dried up on the prescription side for a lot of people. So um, they continue to have addiction, and so now they're going for this, fentanyl, which is being found on the streets. And so, you know, we kind of created that demand uh, by allowing these industries to do what they were doing. And so now we've got to clean it up. Now we've got to get people help. Okay. Luke, can you stay with us for uh, just a bit longer? Because Absolutely. I want to talk about what it, it takes to clean it up and where we, we need to go. Uh, speaking to Luke uh, Niferatos, who is the executive vice president of uh, a new organization to increase knowledge and responsibility regarding, well, our opioid crisis. Coming up. show a uh, pleasure to be talking about a very difficult subject and a very unpleasurable subject with somebody who's so well informed and knowledgeable and has dedicated a big chunk of his life to dealing with uh, this crisis uh, Luke uh, Niferotis uh, and and Luke um, if you just look at the numbers and 53,000 people dead in one year from fentanyl alone that's more than twice as many people as were killed in all homicides that year of 2020 so we're talking about uh, a a drug which doesn't have a will of its own it uh, killing more people than all the murderers put together and a lot more people and why has this been spreading so dramatically? There's a piece in the Washington Post today about uh, parents getting stoned and influencing their kids, little kids, who see their baby boom or millennial parents uh, smoking weed. Do you think that's a, um, a genuine contributing factor to all of this? Absolutely, I do. And that Washington Post piece was absolutely a travesty uh, of epic proportions uh, for, for families and kids across this country. Because, you know, it doesn't matter if you're stoned or drunk or whatever else it is. Uh, you, you know, and I have two little girls. I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old, so I'm speaking from firsthand experience here. Uh, you know, no parent should be at all inebriated when they're parenting. And this, that piece in the Washington Post 
basically glamorized parents getting stoned while parenting and said that basically that needed to be normalized. And I think that is emblematic of the greater problem we have in this country, which is we have a culture right now that is being driven by profit interests, these you know people who want to make money off of dealing drugs, whether it's state legal, marijuana, or any other psychedelics now they're trying to legalize. People who want to make money off of selling drugs are saying, ah, it's, it's no big deal to use drugs. It's no big deal to get high and, and tune out. Uh, that's the last message we need uh, for our society. Last message our kids need to be getting is parents getting high in, in, in the room with them. Last message our you know workplace needs is for folks to be getting high, uh, you know, knowing that's going to decrease their productivity and, and their life you know, potential you know, as it relates to the economy. Um, you know, so many reasons why that piece was bad and why this culture is bad. And and what I'll tell you is, you know, you look at what's happening with fentanyl. You know, 77% of teen overdoses last year. Uh, that's our youth, uh, they died from the fentanyl. And and so what we have is, you know, we have profit interests on one side that want to make a buck off of, you know, s- selling drugs, you know, getting them legalized and sold. And then you have on the other side, you have the cartels who, and drug dealers who are, you know, doing what's, you know, it's this rainbow fentanyl we're, we're hearing about, which, you know, multicolored fentanyl tablets clearly appealing to our kids, drug dealers finding other ways to formulate fentanyl and getting it to our youth. Um, they're absolutely targeting our youth. And what we're hearing from some folks, you know, out there is, oh, it, it basically it's a bunch of drug dealer apologists, Michael, where they're literally trying to say, oh, you know, drug dealers aren't trying to kill anybody. Well, you know, people are dying from what these drug dealers are selling, and they're absolutely targeting our youth. So the big message we need out there is that it is not safe to use drugs ever. It is much more dangerous now to use drugs than it's ever been because you don't know if fentanyl is going to be in it. You don't know uh, what could be contained in those drugs. Yeah, th- that's one of the problems that I know you've written about and warned about is that a fentanyl isn't always labeled as fentanyl. It doesn't come along with a warning label like cigarettes do. It's actually put into other drug cocktails or compounds that uh, people can uh, c- can sell with a very devastating impact. That, that's right. And what I'll say is, you know, there are some people who look at that dynamic and they say, well, you know, what we need is fentanyl test strips to, you know, test these products and see if they have fentanyl, um, you know, or, or maybe some way of making sure people know what's in it. But that's not going to solve the problem because, A, you know, by sending that message, you're saying basically, oh, well, you know, you're going to use anyway. And, B, you know, as I talked about in the previous segment, uh, a number, if not possibly most, of the people using fentanyl right now, they're seeking out fentanyl. Uh, it, you know, it's got a much better high. It's more potent. And as I mentioned, it's cheaper than other opioids. So we have people who are addicted to opioids who are seeking out the high that fentanyl gives. They're, they're seeking out fentanyl right now. So, uh, you know, just testing it is not going to solve the problem. That's why we need a, a do like what I was talking about, a, a two-pronged approach where we go and enforce on the border, we go and enforce with what's coming over from China. We need to take out these cartels. We need to arrest these drug dealers. Um, you know, it, it, I was just reading uh, the DEA, the new DEA uh, in San Francisco is going to be charging drug dealers uh, as, as if they're murderers, and, and they should be. 
Um, and, and so we need to get serious on the dealers, but then we also need to get serious about providing access to treatment, access to care and addiction uh, services uh, for people who are dealing with addiction to this drug. If you are addicted to fentanyl, you are in the midst of one of the most dangerous diseases you could you know, possibly fall into, and we've got to intervene and help you uh, you know, get sober and, and away from that drug as soon as possible. So those are the two ways we need to approach this crisis right now. What, what about, uh, you, um, again, Mexico, which is where many of the drugs come through, China, where many of them are produced. Do Mexico and China have problems with uh, the population using fentanyl? That is an excellent question. Uh, you know, I can't speak as much to Mexico, but what I can tell you about China is China is you know, zero tolerance when it comes to drugs. They, you know, they do not tolerate it in their population at all. And uh, you know, obviously, China is not a country we seek to emulate really in any way. But <laughs> I will tell you that you know, they're now one of the growing world superpowers, and their people are you know, being shipped out to do labor and do things that American workers used to be uh, doing. And that's what you know, Trump was trying to kind of reverse that trend. Um, and so I, I will tell you, I think you know, they have a stronger view of, of the damages that drugs can do to society because they remember when Britain – uh, shipped, you know, opium over into China, and it started the opium wars. And uh, the Chinese were, you know, really destroyed uh, by the spread of opium and addiction across their country. They're not going back to that. And so, right now, we're experiencing a period of very liberal attitudes towards drug use uh, in America. But we need to learn that lesson uh, historically of what, uh, you know, expansion and normalization of drug use does to a society and to a country. We we just can't allow this to to continue to propagate. What about to an individual? How many people? I mean, we, we all hear about the deaths. There are other costs as well, uh, very quickly. Yeah, so you were asking about the harms to individuals? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, a very tiny little bit of fentanyl can kill you um, when you are, you know, it is highly addictive. So, doesn't take long to get addicted to fentanyl um, and, and these other opioids. And once you are addicted, it is nearly impossible to break that addiction on your own. Um, there are some who, who can, but most people are going to need help. And so we need to, uh, you know, not shame people that come forward and say they're dealing with addiction, uh, you know, to these hard drugs. We need to get them help, get them access to treatment right away, because um, that could be the last dose they take. Okay, we will post uh, some of the material from uh, your organization, formerly uh, known as Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Uh, Luke Niferotis, uh, and appreciate your perspective. When we come back, perspective on politics and uh, hurricanes coming up. Portions of the Michael Medved Show are brought to you in part by the Discovery Institute. And on the Michael Medved Show, there have been headlines, uh, and abundant headlines recently, all about the progress in artificial intelligence, with the reports that it is more and more moving toward actual consciousness. And along with that, the artificial intelligence, the robots that they're building now, are held to be more dangerous. I mean, you've all seen movies about them by now. There's a Google engineer 
Uh, he's a former Google engineer who recently claimed that the tech giant's Lambda project, that's the language model for dialogue applications, that the bot that they had built for that project had become fully sentient and, and can feel emotions. How do they know? Do, do they ask the bot, what are you feeling? Uh, the, the best voice on all of this who can put this in perspective and with a little bit of integrity and balance is Dr. Robert Marks, who is a pioneer in the field of computing intelligence. He's Distinguished Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Baylor University, and he serves as the director of the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence and hosting the uh, a center's Mind Matters podcast. Uh, uh, Dr. Marks, it is great to speak to you again. Thank you, Michael. It's good to talk to you. Okay. First of all, with this claim about the, uh, the, the fact that Google has built this language model for dialogue applications that can supposedly feel emotions, how do they know what the machine is feeling? They, they don't. They don't. And one of the things that needs to be done in artificial intelligence is to examine things up closely. If you look at a, an artificial flower bouquet from afar, it looks real. But the only way that you know that it is artificial or real is to go up and examine it closely. And I think that a lot of people are examining things from far away with the, with the appearance of actually being sentient or, or whatever. But if you look at a little bit closer, you find out, indeed, that isn't, uh, that isn't the case. Things begin to fall apart. As far as the computer program Lambda, that was the computer program that Google built that was examined by a Google engineer. And the Google engineer said, wow, this is sentient. This is alive. Um, it, it, it's frankly an observation of a bouquet across the room. It is just the, um, the, the, uh, the image that is portrayed of something which is real. In fact, the true thing that is going on in the artificial intelligence isn't that, uh, isn't that exciting. And in fact, if you drill down, one of the things about these, these news announcements is that you don't get as much of the, um, negative to the news announcement as you do to the original announcement. The announcement is made, everybody goes, wow, it's distributed in the media. But then the, the backlash comes in, and that's not, uh, that's not reported too much. Uh, for example, the Washington Post story on this said that they had, they had in, intercepted a number of, of emails from Lamad and his colleague, and the the Washington Post said, quote, this document was edited with readability and narrative coherence in mind. So therefore, a lot of the quotes were cherry-picked. This is very common in artificial intelligence. They cherry-pick the responses and sometimes edit them. Uh, the other thing that they don't tell you is that this AI was trained to be, uh, to be and to act exactly like it was. They trained this thing with so-called crowd workers. And they had 6,400 dialogues with 121,000 different interchanges with the artificial intelligence. The crowd workers are in it, who interacted with this were explicitly informed to reply in a safe, sensible, specific, interesting, grounded, and informative manner. That's a quote. 
And that's exactly what the chatbot did. It responded in a safe, sensible, specific, interesting, grounded, and informative manner. So we see that the AI did exactly as it was trained to do. And AI has no understanding of what it can do. It can add the numbers 3 and 14, but it doesn't understand what the numbers 3 and 14 are. So therefore, yeah, the, the whole thing is kind of blown out of um, blown out of proportion but it sure makes good media well and when you're talking about something like this the uh, uh, there's so many radical reformers over recent history 20th and 21st century history um, like i'm thinking of the some of the communist visionaries who thought they were going to create a new man they were going to basically program people for better behavior and better values and to be unselfish uh, servants of the state. And uh, it didn't work out that well for them. Uh, but in terms of applying that dream to machines, isn't there more chance that they could actually program these machines to be nicer, uh, more moral, uh, more considerate of others than we are as humans? Oh, exactly. Yeah, the, the machine will respond exactly as it, as as it is trained, and um, you know we go back in this attempt to perfect man. Shoot, it goes back to the Nazis. It goes back to the communists. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, who wrote a very popular book called The Singularity Is Near, uh, purports that artificial intelligence is going to take over the process of evolution. That man has evolved to the point where he can evolve no more. So we have to start this or continue this evolution process uh, using machines. And he says that the next stage of evolution is going to be through man inventing these machines. And, of course, that's all. Um, so it wouldn't be natural selection. It would be human selection. Well, it would be human selection. But th then there's the myth that the artificial intelligence will write better artificial intelligence, which will write better artificial intelligence. And as and eventually come to something called artificial general intelligence where it duplicates whatever a human can do. And then it's going to go on and become a super intelligence. But all of that presupposes that uh, computer programs can be creative. And there's, there's growing evidence, in fact, I think irrefutable evidence, that computer programs, including artificial intelligence, have the inability of being creative. So to write a better program that is beyond the intent of the original programmer is something that requires an intelligence. And that isn't going to happen internal to the artificial intelligence. It will take an external programmer to do that. I, it's fascinating. I, I just saw your wonderful uh, latest installment of Science Uprising. This is Science Uprising, episode 10, and it's entitled Artificial Intelligence, Will Machines Take Over? And one of the questions that you pose in that, and by the way, people can see it for free. Just uh, It's really worth seeing. It's 10 minutes of extremely important provocation. But one of the things you ask about that is that people are looking for computers, for machines to be able to show love, compassion, empathy, and creativity. And you have a powerful argument about why no machine is ever going to be creative. Go ahead. Well, okay, let's let's take creativity. Uh, back in the 1930s, Alan Turing, who was mostly famous for the... Um, uh, 
code breaking cutting down the enigma yeah for the code breaking he was also the father of computer science and the guy was a mathematical genius and he was able to prove that there were certain problems that were non-computable in other words you were not able to um compute these problems on a machine and it wasn't conjecture it was a mathematical proof now it appears that humans also have these non-computable aspects and if AI is going to duplicate them, these, these aspects, these characteristics of human beings have to be computable. And that simply is not going to happen. And the things you mentioned, like love and compassion, and especially creativity, are things which uh, are not computable and therefore are beyond the capability of computers. And by the way, non-computable means non-computable. So if it's non-computable today, it's going to be non-computable in the super-duper computers of tomorrow. Okay, we will get to those super-duper computers of tomorrow. Um, could they turn into cannibals? That, of course, has been suggested. And what about the scandal from the world of chess? Are computers responsible or the solution? We'll get to it coming up on the MedVet Show. Perform Madrona or visit madronafinancial.com. Michael Medved show it is always enlightening and stimulating to speak to professor Robert J Marks who is a pioneer in the field of computing intelligence he's distinguished professor of electrical and computer engineering at Baylor University he also works with my friends at the Discovery Institute where he is the director of the Walter Bradley Center for natural and artificial intelligence and he hosts the center's mind matters podcast I was mentioning before and uh, I, you can go to our website to michaelmedved.com and log to the latest installment of the science uprising series it is uh, more information and stimulation and logic and actually beautifully produced uh, little movie uh, basically that leads you to believe that uh, that whoever created us uh, was better than we are because we can't create anything that equals the powers of the human brain and uh, I, I had mentioned uh, Professor Marx that I had recently been fascinated by this idea of cheating in the world of international chess. Have you followed this story at all? I have not. I'm aware of uh, I'm aware of Kasparov being beat by AI, but I haven't followed that story. No. Okay. Well, here's here's the story. Is there's a 19 year old chess whiz uh, whose name is Hans Niemann. 19 years old, and he beat Magnus Carlsen, who is the international chess champion. But he beat him because Carlson walked away from a game. Now, why did Carlson walk away from a game? Because he had reason to believe that his opponent was cheating at chess. Now, I had no idea. How do you cheat at chess? I think you cheat at chess the way that some people cheat at casinos. I do know that the casinos, for example, that you can cheat at card counting. You have these, you have these very crude methods of card counting, but you can also have more sophisticated computer 
card counting sort of algorithms. And the big question is, how do you communicate with them? Do you put little vibrators in your shoes? Do you, no, uh, no, no, no. Yes. You're, you're given bathroom breaks. And at least what they are saying now, and this has not been proven yet, it's not definitive, is that what Neiman was doing was going to the bathroom and he had a little hand device and he could access, put in the moves that his opponent made and then the machine would tell him, okay, this is what he's going to do next with fair accuracy. In other words, they have gotten so good at the machines responding to chess moves that it's considered a, a, a huge advantage if someone can go to the bathroom and get this information while he's sit, sitting there in the stall. In the stall. Oh, exactly. And I think that uh, I think it was almost forty years ago when IBM Deep Blue beat uh, Gary Kasparov at chess. So we have artificial intelligence um, dominating in the game of chess for many, many years. Well, and, that's because and, this is, but this is not about creativity, right? This is about uh, basically uh, what you say is the most important word for any artificial intelligence, algorithm. Exactly. And, Michael, what they do is they play the same chess game again and again and again and again and again. And they play by the same rules. The rules don't change. And if you play a thousand, a million, a billion chess games, you're going to find out what the best strategies are for winning. And this is basically, uh, I've oversimplified it, of course, but this is basically the approach that chess playing programs have, have done. Now, if you change the rules of chess mid-game, that algorithm would totally fall apart. Uh, in fact, in the game of Go, there, there was a, an algorithm. Go, by the way, is the world's most difficult popular uh, board game. If you, if you change the size of the playing board, I believe it's 18 by 18, to 16 by 16, the AI will totally crash. So therefore, one of the <laughs> things that is, is required for the chess, for, for the uh, AI to limit this is that you have access to the same game again and again and again. And there's a technique in artificial intelligence called reinforcement learning that learns the best way to respond to all of these things. And that's what's happening in these chess games. And I'm sure that after 40 years, this is very publicly available. Okay, there's something else that's publicly available. There's a piece in the Washington Post, AI in the News. It says, a flippy, sippy, and chippy will serve you now. Robots are making your fast food. There's just one catch. It's a robot, a jack-in-the-box in Chula Vista, California, debuted the fries-making robot at the end of July, just a couple of weeks ago. A flippy is trained to sink baskets of food into hot oil and remove them when perfectly golden brown. It uses artificial intelligence to sense food and transfer it when it's ready to cook or serve. This sounds perfectly fine, right? But where is the love, compassion, empathy, or creativity? Well, there isn't. And, you know, a lot of people today are afraid whether or not AI is going to take away their jobs or not. And the answer is, can your job be described by an algorithm, a step-by-step -step procedure? Because that's all that computers and AI can do. Uh, these burger flipping and deep fryer sort of jobs are things which are repetitive. They uh, can be described algorithmically, and therefore a computer program can do them. But if you have a position which requires understanding, sentience, or creativity, that job is not going to be replaced. So 
So, yes, if you have a job which is repetitive and algorithmic, that eventually is going to be replaced. What about warfare? I mean, people, when they dream about robots, they dream about the idea of uh, it's tough to get upset about a robot getting smashed up because they don't have feelings and they're not human and they don't have a beating heart. But uh, would uh, artificial intelligence be an, an alternative for people like Vladimir Putin rather than trying to get 300,000 new recruits? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, we've seen this in the past in warfare. And one of the places that AI is going to help is in the, you know, direct defense and, and, the, and the direct offense, like the Hellfire missile that took out, uh, oh gosh, what was the guy's name? Soleimani? Romanov. Soleimani. Yeah, a, a while back. And we could use these, um, obviously. One place that it won't replace on the battlefield, however, is in the command structure. In terms of the end-user ethics, how you use this technology, that is going to have to be left up to the, to the generals and the commanders because they will be confronted with things that they haven't seen before. And if they're confronted with a scenario that they haven't seen before, they have to make decisions, and usually they can make them very well. AI doesn't have that capability. It can only respond to things that it has seen before, and um, that isn't going to happen on the battlefield. What about, I know that there was a great deal of publicity about Japan developing with their aging society and they have too low a birth rate and so there are a lot of elderly people who need companionship, some of them turning to computers. How is that working out for those robots? Well, yeah, you, you hear about you know, people marrying their um, their sex bots, for example, and um, unfortunately, that's that's a sad story about the human condition. It's about people that don't know the difference between love and being horny. You can um, you can uh, you can love, but that is a deep human emotion, and uh, I think that that is confused for just the companionship, for example, of a dog or a robot or something like that. One of the things that you say in this uh, wonderful Science Uprising, Episode 10, on artificial intelligence is that the core problem with artificial intelligence, in, in a single word, is materialism. Why yes. does this have to do with the belief in materialism? Well, if you're a materialist, you're a naturalist, which means that everything has to be des described by science, by equations, by physical laws. If you have that assumption, if you're in this small silo of materialism, you have to believe that our brains are meat computers. In other words, our brains have to be described by naturalistic processes. If our brains are described by naturalistic processes, then we should be able to duplicate those naturalistic processes in artificial intelligence. So the idea of superintelligence or so-called artificial and general intelligence is built on the foundation of, of materialism. And uh, that is a foundation that has led to all kinds of human suffering, particularly in the 20th century. Um, it's such a pleasure to speak to you, and I hope we'll speak again soon. Uh, Robert J. Marks is a pioneer in the fields of computing intelligence and professor of electrical and computer engineering at Baylor. 
He is also the director for Discovery Institute of the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. His perspective is stimulating, entertaining, informative, and ultimately inspiring. Check it out in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.